Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. Now, today's a very special episode. I'm doing a film review for you of a film that I love very dearly in my heart, which sounds like any other episode, but it's not because we've got a special guest with us today, all the way from across the pond. I will get more to him in just a moment. But first of all, remember to keep liking, sharing, subscribing to all of our content on the social media, Apple podcast reviews, the lot. If you've enjoyed it, let us know what you thought. It's just great to get the opinions out there and share the conversation about film, which is why it's very apt that I've got someone on who equally loves film as much as I do. And I've met him through... Instagram and through our shared love of various films, including today's topic as well of Tarantino. So today we will be discussing the ninth Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And my special guest today, I've only been listening to his podcast recently because we've just got to know each other in the recent passing days as of the recording of this. But I genuinely think he's such a sound guy. He's such a great, intelligent guy as well in terms of his knowledge of film and the way he talks and discusses about it and his podcast is great as well we'll get onto that in a moment but for now my special guest today is from films unchained podcast and that is ace welcome to the podcast ace how are you doing i'm doing well david thank you for the wonderful introduction i am super <laughs> excited to be in this podcast uh yeah i'm doing very well uh from my end how about you yeah, not too bad, thank you. I mean, obviously, we're all doing our best trying to keep sane, really. And I think our shared love of film is basically what gets us through everything. And just talking about film really just helps me sort of unwind. And it feels like it gets, even though it's not really a stress on my chest, it gets a lot off my chest. And it really sort of helps me unwind. When we got in touch, uh, you started discussing stuff with me. Oh, you like this. I like that. I was like, Oh, God, get this guy on the podcast. It's great, especially because we both love a bit of Tarantino. Tell us, uh, just before we sort of continue, give us a few details about yourself, who you are, where you're from. Obviously, I described that you're from across the pond. We're currently traveling time zones at the moment as we're recording this. So just tell us a bit about yourself and your podcast as well and where people can find that. Absolutely. So uh, I'm Ace. I'm currently residing in uh, Ontario, Canada, in a, an area close to Toronto called Mississauga. Currently, Outside of podcasts, I'm currently doing masters in at McMaster University, where I'm in my let's say accelerated one year, and I'm going to finish it hopefully in September, so I can get things rolling and start working, man, because I'm I'm done studying. <laughs> but yeah, I'm uh, currently 23 years old, going uh, going to be 24, and I'm the host of Films Unchained podcast, where I basically break down the movies, talking about the plot analyze the meanings, the lesson, the symbols being involved, and what can we learn from it. These symbols include even objects, scenes, why would the actor portray this way instead of that way. I basically go deep in and when it comes to the movies and every movie has a meaning for me. So I don't just discuss it for no reason. Like yourself, we talk about meaningful movies. Yeah, no, exactly. I couldn't agree more because although I've done quite a lot of my episodes have been quite recommendation based, I do do the odd occasional episode where I do delve a little bit deeper in. And as I'm sort of going on this podcasting journey, I'm getting a little bit better, as we say. I From the episodes I've listened to your podcast, Ace, they're genuinely... They're the sort of things that really ignite me in terms of a fueled debate or really passionate feeling for film and cinema itself. 
uh, and that's what I hope we're going to do with our chosen film today. As a quick note as well, guys, we will be doing another episode. So I will be guesting on the Films Unchained podcast doing a special... Can, can we say what we're going to be doing? Can I re- reveal that or should we keep that secret for now? <laughs> I think we want to hype it up a bit more because like, we want to go build it up bit by bit and all of a yeah. sudden blasts. That's yeah. the movie. Oh, well, okay. Well, we'll keep that under wraps for now, guys. But just keep an eye on both mine and Ace's social media. So Take 97 podcast and Films Unchained podcast. We'll be giving you some clues as to which iconic film. A little bit of a clue there for you. We will be going over. But enough of the pleasantries. Let's get down to business. Let's talk about our favorite, well, one of our favorite films that we've decided to discuss today. And that is, like I said, the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, for you guys who... You can't see this, but on our little call that we got here, I'm currently holding my Blu-ray copy of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And, you know, it's just the poster for it, the poster art for it is just, I, I don't know. Well, what do you have to say about it? I love the overall design and pictorial direction for it. Like, what would you have to say about that? I've seen several fan artworks as well, but this one, the actual official poster is like, it really grabs you from the get-go. As a Tarantino fan... And as a fan myself, I have like a collection of Tarantino movies, like all seven though, not all eight, but like as a Tarantino fan, this uh, movie poster is super iconic because it gives you the colors of the golden age of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You've got Margot Robbie in the middle being fantastic. Let's be honest, it's Margot yeah. Robbie. Yeah. But then you also got the, the, the vibes of the 60s like a good way to present the 60s with the colors, with the poster, having Sharon Tate in the middle being the center of attention. Mm. I think Tarantino did a splendid job in having this poster as the main cover. And I think the poster really does act as a nice precursor for what we have to come in the rest of the film, because the film really is a visual, in my opinion, anyway, and I'm sure you, I feel you agree with me as well. It's a visual masterpiece in terms of like movie making. It's a masterclass in how to make visual storytelling obviously there are many other people many other directors who have done the visual storytelling motif so for instance obviously the precursor to pretty much any american film director alfred hitchcock he's the the master of suspense the master of all the visual storytelling rather relying more on the not so much dialogue but the visuals but tarantino really does sort of learn from that and i think we were having a conversation before this and we were saying how much this is a very mature film for tarantino it's not all about the blood guts and gore of some of the earlier films well at least in part anyway and just a pre-warning as well guys we will spoil this for you so if you haven't seen the film you need to watch it because we're, we're not going to shy away from the details. <laughs> so I'm going to kick us off with a point. So with a point that I obviously I'll give you a brief overview for this. So those of you who don't know, Quentin Tarantino film released in 2019 stars Leonardo DiCaprio as a fading TV star from the 1950s, Rick Dalton as the 50s, early 60s, and Brad Pitt as his best friend, Cliff Booth, who's also a stuntman. And like we just mentioned a second ago, Ace mentioned the impeccable Margot Robbie, who actually portrays the real life movie star, Sharon Tate, who was murdered in 1969 during an incident involving the Manson family and Charles Manson. But it's a very interesting mix of fictional and and non-fiction, essentially, this film. I mean, just tell us a little bit about your first impressions of the film after you watched it for the first time, Ace. What do you think of the film overall? Well... David, to be honest with you, when I when I first uh, heard the announcement about uh, Tarantino doing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I got not just goosebumps, but, but anxiety. 
to me, I've studied and read about Charles Manson and the Manson family like for two years before the movie uh, basically released. Yeah. So when he announced that he's going to do the Manson family story, I was in fear because like, how can you portray such a heinous and disgusting crime that probably the worst time in the 60s? My impression in that movie when I first got him like, you know, this is Tarantino. I don't know what to expect, but I'm going to get in. But when I got out of the movie, I learned that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was like a love letter to the 60s. And what I like about it, there's like two to three kinds of stories, actually three kinds of stories. You mentioned Rick Dalton. His side of the story was showing the filmmaking industry in the 60s and how he continued to not giving up even though he messed up here and there. And a lot of culture reference about Italy, where the Spaghetti Western was on the rise in the 60s. Then you got Cliff Booth. It was showing the spooky and dark times of the 60s, mm. where like, you know, there's like the scenes of the suspense of the Manson family. You got also the, the time of the LSD and acids. So mm, those yeah. were the times there. And last but not least was Sharon Tate, portrayed by Margot Robbie, where it showed the, the rise of Sharon Tate and how she was basically the center of attention of the 60s because she was the upcoming rising star. Exactly. No, and it's very, like you say, those three narratives you couldn't have. I mean, obviously you get Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. They will naturally intercede. They are because the relationship they have, they are friends. He is his stunt. The one is the stuntman for the other. And then you've just got this up and coming movie star whose fame and glory that could have been was cut short so very savagely by the events of 1969 and you could you think how are these all like and it's in a tarantino movie how does it work it works very strangely and to sort of start us off really a uh, main sort of point i uh, main talking points there's several points i love about once upon a time in hollywood but i think you mentioned the manson bit so i feel we should sort of start off with that obviously we get introduced to all these characters we get them all set up as you do in a regular movie but this is a Tarantino movie. So the suspense is very, I feel for me personally, the film is, itself is a big suspense builder. You get, like you say, you've got the three levels of these characters and you've got different aspects of the 60s and Hollywood being portrayed as like very romanticized and very eerie in other places as well. But particularly we'll highlight the Manson scene. So the moment when Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, excellently, I would say. I do feel like I love Leo DiCaprio, but I do think that the real main guy here was Brad Pitt in this case. Because in terms of the tension he had to deal with in the Manson scene alone was worthy of like main credit as such. But, you know, not to diss Leo DiCaprio at all, because I do love him and I think he does a cracking job in this film. But I do think Brad Pitt shines that little bit extra because of those moments he has. So in the, the Spawn Ranch sequence, I personally found that it's probably the one of the most unsettling and most unnerving scenes. The rest of it's all very nice. It's very, you know, nostalgic, the 60s. There's all this lovely production design detail, the music. But yeah, what did you sort of feel like? For me, it's the moment when Cliff is walking through the ranch and he's walking up to George Spawn's little house in the middle of this. All the Manson family that are living there are just staring at him. It really invokes that weird creepiness that you like you hear stories about the Manson family. Obviously, you're, you're a little bit more versed in it because you've researched it more. But like, tell us a little bit more about what you sort of felt when you watched that scene as well. Yeah, sure, David. So just to give you a little bit like a preview. So the Manson family, what was interesting is that Charles Manson did not murder anyone. He was just 
leading people to kill them, which is the, the weirdest thing. And he mentioned this quote that if you want to leave something behind, leave something witchy, which means like do something that no one can forget. And me, when as the scene approaches to the serious moments, my heart was pumping because it was on the hottest day of the summer. So it was August 9th, 1969. So it was like the last year of the decade. And my heart was pumping. And like the end, we're talking about the end of the scene, right? Like the end, like throughout the end of the movie. We're talking about like how they were trying to look for basically like like the George Spahn and like even like the real life of Sharon Tate because the only reason that they wanted to kill them, not like in the movie, but the only reason they wanted to kill them was because Charles Manson was actually a musician and he did not get like a deal or like a contract for what he does because apparently he was close to one of the members of the Beach Boys. Yeah. So that was an interesting moment. So him was trying to get revenge or trying to infuriate anger to those guys like the LaBianca and George Spann. But in the movie, they're trying to show that these people portrayed violence I think we should basically use the medicine on them. And, and then my heart was pumping. All of a sudden, when uh, Rick Dalton showed up and basically kicked them out, their mind changed. I was like, what the hell? Okay. But as I approached the, the Cliff Booth moment, dude, my heart was pumping because mm-hmm. it was just a, first of all, patient, quiet scene. Cliff Booth was on acid, and I'm just like, this might be the strangest, but probably the most awesome scene that I've ever seen. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, just what happened? The dog, the, the can. Uh-huh. Everything, everything so much. I mean, I just, the scene which essentially sets up Cliff's conflict then later on in that final scene, in that final 15, 20 minutes of the film, that final segment, which is heralded as probably the most Tarantino-esque scene a Tarantino movie can produce compared to the rest of the movie. It's such a stark contrast. I do feel like, so obviously we get the sequence where we get Brad Pitt's character. He meets poor old George, who's gone blind. Uh, he's being eyed up by all the, the hippies as, as they're referred to in the film constantly by the Manson family. And that really, really unnerving unsettling moment where they're like you know you know something else is waiting to come and then when you get to that final scene you realize you know this is what it's been building up to and i mentioned this to you before we started like uh, before we started discussing this i feel like obviously the ending scene is going to be most people's favorite scene because it's the crowd pleaser it's the tarantino pleaser it's going to be very you know it's got all the violence the crazy crazy amounts of it seems so choreographed but at the same time you just feel like this random spontaneity of it all at the same time it's weird it's like choreographed spontaneity of madness and chaos as the Manson family I mean on a personal level not sort of even analyzing it really deeply the moment when like you mentioned the dog old Brandy (laughs) Brandy the dog Brandy the dog makes me laugh so much it's just it's so tense and then next thing you know and then he just bite bites his hand <laughs> yeah and then i mean i don't know the bit as well i think that bit sort of a night it's the moat that's what gets you into the mood of it like right straight away we're into it but it's the moment for me my personal highlight from the ending scene is definitely most definitely the moment where cliff's done all he can do in the house most of them are dead it's you think nothing else can happen and then one of them who's got her face absolutely bloodied and smashed to pieces, she's still got a knife in her hand and she runs straight out of the room and crashes through the window and scares Rick to absolute 
deaf and like it's because he's got his headphones on and he's listening to such a cool swinging 60s tune he's just like he's just calm in his little floating chair and all of a sudden he's like these hippies are coming for me <laughs> i mean it's unexpected comedy like because it's such dramatic presence throughout the film the mansons you see them throughout dotted throughout the entire narrative but to have that unexpected comedy from Leonardo DiCaprio whilst also dealing with quite a serious situation is quite a good tonal shift in my opinion and I think it was the right decision just for me personally I mean you know absolutely it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole film as a whole I think it is for most people but like what would you say about sort of that side of thing the mixture of tones going from suspense one minute to the slightly strange comedy on the other hand <laughs> you see here's the thing when it comes to like people criticize if they're they're criticizing the movie which i don't really care about those critics is that that's quentin tarantino do you remember like kill bill you got the bride and oren they're fighting in the snow samurai fight and they have like a mexican music you have all these things in one scene they're like that, that's not accurate that where's where's the japanese a uh, background all that stuff Quoting Glorious Bastards, like you yeah. got Hitler in the theater, and mm-hmm. like you know, of course things happen. And like, why are they doing this? Is not accurate. Why are this? Go- That's Quentin Tarantino style. I think having the little piece of comedy was trying to basically like. Here's the thing with Tarantino, the mastermind is that he's trying to play with our hearts. Anxious, then funny, then suspense, then what the f moments i think that specific clip where like there's like a little comedy was just perfect was trying to tell us that don't worry i'm (laughs) quentin i know what i'm gonna do exactly and i think it really as much as he didn't just put that scene in just to please everybody and to be like yeah it's still me whilst he is still saying that he's saying yeah it's still me by the end of the film i do feel like it's the right choice. And the fact that it's the way he leaves Rick Dalton out of the whole drama with Cliff and Brandy and all of them inside the house and, and his wife as well. Like everybody's in on the action except old Leo DiCaprio. Because when I watched it in the cinema originally, when this came out, I actually genuinely, like, I know what's coming now. I've watched it too many times to not know that Rick's waiting outside and he's just chilling in his pool. But I do feel that it still gives me that. I always chuckle every time she comes crashing through the window and he gets absolutely scared out of his mind, like, go, what's going on? Because you forget about him. And that's the master of the narrative. That's how well it's been constructed. You forget about Rick. You're focused on the events of Cliff and the Mansons in his house and that's the sort of genius of it and the tonal shift from one minute to another is like you say classic tarantino the constant progression i mentioned at the beginning the progression of tarantino and obviously he's matured as a filmmaker in the sense that his shots look really good and something i wanted to bring up with you what were your favorite visuals of once upon a time in hollywood like any particular shots or sequences that you thought that really wowed you when you first watched this I have several. I have loads I could go on and on. But since you're here, I'd love to hear what hit you when you went, whoa, that's a great shot. Because it was working. So Quentin Tarantino did. So his DOP was Bob Richardson, who worked on, I believe, I think he's worked on all his movies since Kill Bill onwards. But it's genuinely a love of art. It's shot on film, various different types of film. You've got the black and white 60 millimeter for the TV show. 35 millimeter for the majority of it i believe if i've did my research correctly and various other sort of little extra bits as well like little cine film as well for home movie footage but it's a visual odyssey in my opinion so what would you what sort of 
visuals did you take from this? What iconic moments do you sort of relish in every time they come on the screen? I'd say, so one of them is when Cliff drives, mm. wherever he goes, like, it's just so nice. I don't know what it is, but like he makes driving in the 60s look cool. Him yeah. in his yellow shirt and then the car and looking at pussycats. The shots of Cliff driving around. I honestly love them. They're so good. The shots of him, like you say, with Pussycat, whenever he literally drives, I think it was about three times, maybe two times, yeah. before he actually picks her up and takes her back to the Spawn Ranch and gets introduced to the Manson family. It's so fun to just watch cars sweep around, like in any film. I love seeing film cars being shot so cinematically. Like seeing them drive around a landscape like Los Angeles, it's just very pleasurable to the eye <laughs> and also the fact that I know they went to great lengths to recreate various parts of Los Angeles of the 60s of that period of that exact year so for instance the shot I believe it's when I think Rick and Cliff have been in the car at some point or another during the shot they drive down a part of what was the original theater row where you see all these marquees for cinemas and porn based cinemas as well like all the different all the grungy different types of industries there as well where yeah. apparently the buildings were listed so they actually kept all the the front facings of them but they didn't obviously they're used for other things but they've been granted permission to actually recreate the original cinemas and frontages the light box signs everything and it's really like you say bring you back to your point a love letter to hollywood i mean i yeah. I, I literally, I cannot tell you how much I love the details. Details are my thing. So, yeah, no, same I hear, like, I, I break, like, we break down details and what do they mean? What are the symbols involved? Like, that's what I love talking about, like, in different yeah. movies. And I'll get on to another point. So, the sequence I think we'll mention in particular is when Cliff is driving home, he's dropped Rick off, uh, he's done his work for the day. I believe it's after he's done the roof work, I think. He's driving home, it's late at night, and he's coming home. And you see his journey, you go from, oh, he's the friend of a very famous, well, former TV star, probably a new movie star, maybe, depending on how he plays his cards. And he's driving alone, and he makes his way back to his humble little trailer with his dog Brandy and the dog food. And just, it's going from that high society edge all the way down to this kind of humble living I, I what would you yeah. say like let's unpack that scene let's unpack that sure, moment yeah that contrast between the hollywood the sparkly shining hollywood to cliff's humble abode if we break down rick dalton and cliff booth you got rick dalton yes you know like big movies uh, let's say big star in the 50s and the 60s but when he returns home like remember like he cannot drive because of dui He's always struggling with himself. It's as if he's not thankful. Mm. But you got Cliff, who, regardless of how big or small the house is, he has his dog, he's just sitting down watching TV, and he's humble. So mm. you got two different characters, but like opposite sides, like who's thankful, who's not, who has a big house, and who's not. That's what I was thinking. I think what Tarantino did, like, oh my God, they're two friends. All of a sudden, we see a term like, what? You see Cliff Booth being happy. That's what I love about it. Yeah, exactly. I, I just love the the polar opposite between them. And we talk about Cliff Booth so with such a sense of endearment here, especially I feel Ace like, like, has a man crush on Cliff Booth here. I think if he could live with any movie star that was fictional or stuntman or any character, I, I'm getting Cliff Booth vibes here. Like, I'm going to stick with Leo. <laughs> I'll take Leo. You take Cliff. Uh <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'll come with that. 
we mentioned Cliff. We're joking about the characters here now, but I love, uh, I don't know, I think you, you might probably know this or like have noticed it, but I love the subtle allusions to real life Hollywood actors and actresses and people within the system and people of the time culturally. There's the big one that everyone mentions is Bruce Lee, featured in an extensive little flashback scene to Wycliffe. He can't work in the film and movie business anymore. It's, you know, he gets asked, he wants to be involved as Rick's stunt double. Rick really pleads with uh, Kurt Russell's character, where he's like, oh, just let him do it, let him do it, uh, just for old time's sake. And he's like, yeah, well, if he causes any, any trouble, I'm going to kick him off. Obviously, it's caused a lot of controversy because, like, from on part of the family, some people don't mind. Other people are just like, you know, it's partially fictionalized, it's partially not. But obviously, it's dealing with a real person, and we should really state here that obviously, with Bruce Lee, you know, he did obviously, like anyone, probably had a persona in his home life and a persona in front of the cameras. And I feel what Quentin Tarantino wanted to bring to this was not necessarily a portrayal of Bruce Lee in the sense that, you know, he wanted to insult him. He wanted to bring out this horrible side to him. I mean, he might have been horrible in his in personal, you know, between takes, he might not have been, but it's a fictionalized version of it at the end of the day. I do think that this Bruce Lee depiction is a very tricky situation to sort of like subject to broach, but I wanted to see what you thought about the Bruce Lee scene particularly. Okay, let's go to Glorious Bastards. You got Hans Landa, a Nazi, but yet he's one of the most iconic, lovable characters in Tarantino universe. People, people know he's a Nazi, but they love him. Can you imagine that? Mm. They love a Nazi. That's number one. Uh, number two, you got basically Hitler being spoiler alert in Glorious Bastards. If you're not, if you're not, if you haven't watched it, pause this. <laughs> Hitler in real life, he basically, from what I understood, he basically shot himself like. From what I understood, I'm not the historical expert, but in the movie, he got killed by the bastards, ruthlessly, in the theaters. If people enjoy that, even though it's fictional, but if they enjoy that fictional movie and how those fictional characters were portrayed, why don't you do the same to the non-fictional characters such as Bruce Lee mm. and give him the opportunity, like you gave the opportunity for Hitler? Couldn't agree more. And... I think it's one of my highlights of the film. So obviously the ending of the of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is my all-time favorite. The Bruce Lee scene stands out because it deals with Bruce Lee. And it's like, it, yeah. to basically sort of finish off what you said there, that is why it becomes an iconic image because of the fact you're dealing with something you know is real, but you know it's not. Like what it's being shown to you as is not an accurate depiction, but it doesn't matter because it's meant to be there as a, you know, we've got a fictional character. We've got somewhat, you've got to integrate Cliff Booth into this somehow. And Bruce Lee was the way into that because Bruce Lee did his own stunts and we've got a stunt man who's a bit rebellious and we want to sort of set him up as this mysterious character and a fight between Bruce Lee and our fictional character. So Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, it's the ultimate way to get into it. That's the other thing as well in terms of historical details is what I was going to sort of, finish this point on with really is the I don't know how you felt about the allusions or if you realize the allusions to the Natalie Wood quote-unquote murder killing and such so obviously Natalie Wood for those of you who don't know a bit of context she was killed in a boating accident 
people still to this day don't know whether her husband killed her or whether she just drowned by accident. No one really knows. Still an ongoing thing. I think there was a recent thing in the last year or so which sort of investigated that, more allegations of that. But the main point of that is that Cliff Booth is very strange and very eerie that Cliff Booth's mini, it's very small, very minute scene. It refers to that in a sense that Cliff Booth, oh, did he kill his wife? Did he kill his wife? Because, and they show him on this boat in a wetsuit with his wife after having an argument. I don't know whether that, what that says about Tarantino's stance on that historical event, but I thought it was very interesting that Tarantino, like how Tarantino picks and chooses which moments to partially fictionalize and use majority of the historical accuracy. And then the rest where he just uses a tiny little bit of detail. But I don't know how much you sort of knew about that or thought about that when you saw the, the film itself. When you mentioned that specific scene, I had that concern. I was sitting with my friend and we always talk about movies. So that's, a, that's our thing. I just looked at him and he looked at me. He's like, we're just quiet, but we're just nodding. I think what in that scene, I think Tarantino wants to bring everything that involved in the 60s, how big or small, nice or not. He always wanted to bring it involved. Just want to go back a little bit of Bruce Lee is that he portrayed Bruce Lee that like the way he was portrayed in the movies, like the way of the dragon. So he was portraying like what Bruce Lee was in the 60s, like that iconic character in the 60s. Doesn't care about real life or fake. He wants to show what the 60s had to offer. So going back to that the illusion if it's real or not about the murder i think he just wants to bring the fact like this what happens yeah whether we don't know or we do know but that news came about in that era so he yeah. wants to bring everything involved in the 60s including that small minute or two minute clip no exactly and joe i just want before we continue this i it's amazing that we can as film enthusiasts and just general people who love our films we can sit and talk about a tiny mini segment like there's so much to unpack in once upon a time in hollywood in the sense there's much bigger things like much longer sequences i'm not going to mention it too much today we probably won't go into it as much but the sequences shooting the lancer tv series pilot i think the western with um so rick where he gets his all new do and everything that's a really good scene it's a well acted scene it's a long drawn out scene it's intercut between um, moments of sharon tate those sequences are like they're probably the most straightest acted sequences in a Tarantino film that aren't particularly related to the, I, I want to say plot, quote unquote plot, as it were. They're very separate and you could literally make a short film out of those sequences as a whole. And that's sort of the idea of behind Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the thing that I get from it anyway, that it's a day in the life of either an actor a stuntman or a famous movie star and that's all it is and it's all of it mashed together and then you add on top of that the culture rumors everything else you know the manson killings natalie wood stuff anything it's all mashed in together and i feel like although we've still got one more film from tarantino apparently even though oh, technically man. kill bill one and two like there's that debate is it one film is it two <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I get confused with that. <laughs> yeah, because apparently it's, it's, it counts as one. Um, if but you yeah. don't count Death Proof as one of his movies, then yes, it counts. Yes. <laughs> so he's still got a couple of movies left. In my opinion, he could stop making films now. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was his ultimate opus. I'm just going to put it out there. It's his ultimate film. 
that should have ended his career. He won't, obviously, because... I'll agree with you, actually, in this one. I will absolutely agree, because the the reception was amazing and fantastic that after the premiere, it was an eight-minute standing ovation for Tarantino. Yeah, so like I said, I don't know what he's going to do for the 10th film, but I think it should have been... This should have been the 10th film. He should have done some other crap for, like, the ninth (laughs) one. (laughs) I'm not... Like, Tarantino's not everyone's taste. I'm not a fan of every single one of his films, but I do think that this one is basically a culmination of all the good stuff put into one and it really should have just ended everything there and if he did like novels like I've heard he's going to fine be like that that's fine but like I really think he either should have done something rubbish first or something that he wasn't sure about and then did the 10th one as once upon a time or not but he might not have had money to make the 10th film then if it was that rubbish but who knows (laughs) I think what uh, Tarantino does is that see like I uh, both us as movies enthusiasts I see Quentin Tarantino a little bit of resemblance of Stanley Kubrick, mm. where he he picks his movies as if it was his last film. I mean, minus Death Proof, but that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he wants to make rumors about the 10th movie just so he wants to exceed people's expectations, like what he did for us in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Some people say it's Kill the Bride or Kill Bill Volume 3. Some mm. say it's Bonnie and Clyde. Some people say, God forbid, Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I think... He wants to, just to give people like a, all good things to those who wait. And he wants to end off his movies in good terms to make a legacy. He already has a legacy, but he wants to give that raise the bar yeah. uh, attitude. No, exactly. I genuinely, I, I hate to sound really passive and keep agreeing with you, but I genuinely agree with you. I genuinely think that, yeah, that whole concept of the last film, the film, treat it like it's your last I think he's done it more, obviously, like we've said, we keep we keep slagging Death Proof off. Obviously, guys, if you want to watch Death Proof, I mean, <laughs> you can if you want, but you might not enjoy it after you're, like, the fact you've lost several hours of your life. But every film constantly for Tarantino, I feel he's tried to step up a mark. In my opinion, I've always thought that there's only, for me, I've got a top three easy for Quentin Tarantino. It will always be this one, Once Upon a Time, Pulp Fiction, And then my most favorite Tarantino film, which I keep saying to everyone, is Jackie Brown, which is very weird because he always... Really? Yeah, I love Jackie Brown. It's one of my favorite ones. Like, It's weird because he keeps saying himself, oh, it's not my favorite film because I adapted it from a... really adapted it from a book. And it's not really my film because he he didn't write it then. It wasn't as original as a lot of the other films. Like, the other films had source material, but this one was purely a book adaptation, and he feels like it's not his own film. But I love Jackie Brown. It's a bit of an odd choice, but I do love it. It's one of my personal favourites next to Once Upon a Time. Interesting. You're, like, probably the the first one I know that considers Jackie Brown, like, uh, a favourite movie. Nothing bad with Jackie Brown, but I've never heard anyone who says Jackie Brown is one of my favourites. To me, Quentin movies that I love is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. These two, I will take them dearly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll put Pulp Fiction aside. Not, nothing. I love Pulp Fiction. But compared to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the feels it gave you, the vibe it brought yeah. to us, I think it cannot be t- taken away. Linking back, so we've obviously, we've discussed how much we love Tarantino, how much he amalgamates his best bits, amalgamates the best bits of the era. And like I said, so we mentioned Bruce Lee. Uh, we get little cameos from slightly more briefer moments from other actors and prominent people there's one particular scene which it sticks in my head so much as a brilliantly shot moment that is a crane shot where we go we follow Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski as they're about to go off to the Playboy Mansion and you follow them 
and you start off actually looking at floating bed, little floating little chair in a swimming pool. It cranes over. It's a beautiful shot. It's one of my probably my favorite actual pieces of cinematography in the film because I love the fluidity of how much we can go from one story to another. So we go from that and then we go very smoothly to Sharon and Roman getting in the car, this lovely classic vintage GM. And then we see them zooming around all the way to the Playboy Mansion. And then it gets into the song, Son of a Loving Man, which paired with the Playboy Mansion aesthetic, it's brilliant. It's very 60s. It's got that great vibe about it. You talk about the vibe of this that's been created for us, this love letter to the 60s and Hollywood itself. The moment particularly that I love is the cameo by Steve McQueen. It's a very simple scene, but you see, yeah. you see Steve McQueen and it's, I think it's Damien Lewis. I want to say it's Damien Lewis that plays Steve McQueen in this. And then he comes along and all he does for the film is explains to the audience essentially, and this random woman that comes up next to him going, like the story of Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski, and I forget, I've actually forgotten his name now, but the boyfriend person that she was engaged to prior, Jay, Jay Seberg, something like that. His name's Jay. But yeah, so basically Steve McQueen's little ex explanation to us as the audience is a brilliant narrative device. You think it would be simple exposition but it's kind of fun exposition that you just got steve yeah. mcqueen as this random narrator going he used to be engaged to her she went to make a movie and then he basically said i'm gonna make you a better offer that you can't refuse <laughs> and then all, th <laughs> all three of them are in some weird three-way living arrangement <laughs> yeah I think it was interesting. I think he wanted to add that because like he wants to make a reference about Rick Dalton because Rick Dalton is basically the personification of Steve McQueen because yeah. when Rick Dalton was playing um, Wanted Dead or Alive when he was watching his own show, yeah. it was basically Steve McQueen in real life that he does that. Mm. So it's nice how he added that. Like, yeah, Steve McQueen is a guy who played Dead or Alive. And I think the addition was just to give the idea, like the background behind Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Because like no one knew how they got married and stuff. So they just wanted to give that little piece in a funny way. Just to ask you, this, David, do you think it was a coincidence or a coincidence they didn't show as much or importance of Roman Polanski in the film? Yeah, I, I want to say yes. But then, I don't know. It's a tricky situation, really, because I feel like Quentin had his three. So we've got three figureheads. So we've got Sharon, we've got Rick, we've got Cliff. And I feel like if we added all that, like a big textured Roman Polanski story into the mix, it could have been a four hour film. I think we could, because we could have had a subplot where we like, we cut over to him and we see him making, I think it was Rosemary's Baby, I want to say at the time possibly, or, or just afterwards. Yeah. But yeah, we could have seen him making a film and we could have had that emotional impact of, you know, oh God, his loved ones died and he wasn't there, you know. But the fact we decided to focus more on the Hollywood, Los Angeles situation of it all and the events surrounding that place, that time, I think it really stays true to what Quentin Tarantino wanted to do. He wanted to capture Los Angeles. He didn't want to distract the audience with too much internationalism. So we went to Italy a little bit in those home movie sequences when Rick gains a bit of fame with spaghetti westerns and those little, and the, Ita <laughs> the Italian jobs um, rip off essentially, <laughs> which I find so funny. I find the posters and the stuff made so great. But no, I do... I don't think it's, I don't think it was a mistake to sort of leave him out and not really delve too much into him. I, I would say personally, you know, I, I don't know if that answers your question. I feel like I, I tangented. <laughs> no, it, it does. No, because like, I think it was like uh, 2017, I, I may be mistaken, where like 
Roman Polanski has been uh, convicted of sexual assault and stuff. So like when he tries to basically, you know, show, you know, like the, the 60s, he wants to sh show just a little piece of Roman Polanski, but not as much just to give us the idea that, yeah. yeah, he was a famous director, but that doesn't mean, you know, we should give attention to him. No, exactly. Very apt that you mentioned the whole, it's very good symbolism then. We're not giving him screen time because... A, you could say you could make a movie about Roman Polanski all on his own and do a proper biopic type thing, and that would be fine in a separate movie. But the fact that he goes, oh, I'm not giving him the time of day kind of means one thing, but it also kind of means another. It's good for the plot in the sense he wants to keep it very centred on Sharon and our two fictional leads, set it against this backdrop, this day in the life aspect of Los Angeles in 1969. So I like the symbolism, the parallelism between the fact that we're giving him time, but we're not giving him time. So it's, you know, very interesting views. I, I agree with you on that one. So I think it's very interesting you point that one out. I mentioned music, Son of a Loving Man in the Playboy Mansion sequence. That is a brilliant song, one of my favourites. I have too many favourites from the soundtrack. Before I sort of go on and tell you what my favourite ones were, what were your sort of favourite highlights from I the soundtrack itself? So. There's probably too many to mention. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned Son of a Loving Man was a good one because especially with the addition of Sharon dancing, yes. uh, like it, it showed like, an, it's a, a nice piece. It was like, you know, great getting to the vibe and the atmosphere. But the one that stuck to me that I'll be like, that's the song of the movie is California Dreaming. <sighs> Such a, it's re I feel bad because I haven't put, picked that one out. But in the sense, I, I can understand why that would resonate for different people. Because for me, I like, I like the nostalgia for that era. But I also, I think California Dreaming is definitely a, very mel it's got that melancholic tone but at the same time you've got that lovely like something deeper is happening and you listen to the lyrics of that song it's very soothing but at the same time you know that there's pain and sorrow beneath all of that and i think that's yeah. what the film itself tries to convey i think if you were to pair the a song from the soundtrack with the film california dreaming definitely is the epitome and embodiment of the film itself pain sorrow bit of passion in there because obviously what would have created the song in the first place it was got to have been passion and this was a passion project for tarantino so it's a nice bit of symbolism sort of between the two i think do you have any other sort of picks from the soundtrack as well any other sort of recommendations for people who are on their disc spins <laughs> <laughs> i can't really pick uh, many of them because like you see the 60s soundtrack is i don't have a specific like this one's my friend i think overall the 60s yeah. uh, soundtrack are just like amazing to listen to even if you want, listen to it many times now, I would agree that the whole thing's great. The production on the soundtrack album. So for anyone who wants to go out and buy and purchase, this isn't an endorsed thing, by the way. We're not being paid to sell the record or the film. If anyone wants to check the soundtrack out on Spotify or whatever your persuasion is, I love the little radio segments. They're in the film as well, but I love the radio. I love the fact that when you play the album, and you just get the song and the way it fades into these genuine commercials. Like I thought that at first yeah. I thought they were made for the film specifically, but you do research and specifically the final track on the album is an advert for a competition and it's used in the, right at the end of the credits. And it's the secret bat phone competition for the 1960s Batman TV series with Adam West and Burt Ward on it. And it's just really. Yeah, genuine. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm still yet to find out whether it is genuine, but I think it is genuine. I want to say it is because it's right. It's literally the last track on the on the soundtrack album. And it's a uh, join Batman and Robin and me for uh, on KHJ and tune in every 
Thursday and Friday night or something like that. And he's like, uh, and keep it KHJ. And it's, it's, if you go to the end of the film as well, if, if you scrub to the end of the credits, you will hear it. And it's such a nice little bit of a weird ending to the film because it's like one last bit of pop culture into this pop culture extravaganza. Like, <laughs> I'm surprised you were surprised by that. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. I don't know what to say. Well, that's Tarantino for you. I'll yeah, say that. it's so, yeah, a weird mishmash of everything. Uh, but yeah, I love the Batman reference. It's just so good. It's so, it's weird, but it's wonderful weird. Yeah, but I think it came on the right time because like, it's the 60s, Adam West, Batman, 60s, so yeah. right to it. It is brilliant. It's right at the end of the film, like, oh, it's so great. There's Son yeah. of a Loving Man, Hush. Uh, Mrs. Robinson is also a good one. Yeah. Like, uh, oh. Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, I love a bit of Simon Garfunkel. So so easy to listen to. So good. And gives me graduate vibes all the time, you know. <laughs> I have to watch The Graduate after. I watch Once Upon a Time. <laughs> was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack based, uh, was it your favorite soundtrack out of all the movies? Um, I would say, hmm, I would say, because it is only 60s. And I'm not usually a 60s fan. Like, I don't, I like a bit of the Beatles, like various other artists from the era mainly the Beatles, to be honest. I'm, I will freely admit the 60s aren't really my sort of jam, as it were. But I do think I discovered more through this soundtrack. So I think it's definitely my top Tarantino soundtrack overall because I like pretty much all of the songs. All the songs tick the boxes. It's like you said earlier, I would probably say that as a whole, they really do combine together and you can't really like... Reservoir Dogs, I'll always pick out one song the song i'll i'll pick out Steeler's wheels and pop fiction i like pop fiction as a whole but you know there's the odd a couple of song like jungle boogie stuff like that i'll always pick out the odd <laughs> one uh which are really really my sort of speed as it were but uh, i i would say once upon a time in hollywood is probably my favorite tarantino soundtrack then i will say i'll go as far to say that All right i think we're on the same page <laughs> <laughs> that's good to know would you say the same yeah i'd say the same because the Hateful Eight is always suspense. Ennio Morricone always does suspense stuff like with Spaghetti Western. Django Unchained is a mix of everything. The, the historical songs of the original Django uh, figure, you got a bit of yeah. Tupac and uh, Rick Ross, which was a, a bit unique. Well, it is Tarantino. That was unique. Kill Bill, not really. Jackie Brown was also good. I think the, the culture of black exploitation movies was fantastic that uh, he did it. But I say... I'm a fan of the 70s more, but the 60s brought us like the peaceful, fun tone, especially in the movie was a perfect piece because Tarantino creates stories through listening to music. Another fun fact, he just listens to a soundtrack and be like, we're going to make this movie. That's how he does it. Yeah, that's good. What I would probably say, just to close off what we're saying about the soundtrack, my... Other than, obviously, I mentioned Hush by Deep Purple, Son of a Loving Man, Mrs. Robinson, great classics. But my top favorite song is probably Bring a Little Loving by Los Bravos because it's got that that, that, that good bass. I think it's a bass. I want to say it's a bass. That is very 60s, but very like it's nearly the 70s. It's such a like that lovely, deep, repeating tune that just goes over and over again. And they use it on... I think they use it on the trailer uh, on the main menu screen of the Blu-ray as well. And the way the radio fades into it, where you have KHJ Los Angeles, and then it goes into the tune. I like, I love the way it comes in and matched with the visuals of cars going by on the LA freeway. It just, for me, it's the epitome of sound and picture married together in one perfect harmony in a Tarantino universe. So that's, you know, I'd absolutely love it. Uh, Is there any sort of last sort of moments that you'd like to sort of pick out that you, 
we haven't really covered. I feel like we talked so much. Oh, uh, yeah. I feel like we need to focus on the face of the 60s, uh, Sharon Tate. I think we need to yes. give her like a little... Uh, Absolutely. Good. I think the way we ended it with Sharon Tate, I think was a lovely way similar to Tarantino's conclusion about Sharon Tate. I think, yo, I think this is a coincidental thing that we're going to end off with Sharon Tate the same way Quentin Tarantino end off lovely with Sharon Tate, so... I, I think it's the perfect way to end. Take it away. Tell us a little bit more about what you, your impact. So we'll talk about that final scene. And when I say final scene, I mean, so for anyone who's seen the film, the final scene of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, once all the bloodshed's gone, once the hippies are gone, after my second favourite moment in the film where Rick burns the hippie with a flamethrower, it just, I cannot stop laughing after that. I, I cannot... love that one. <laughs> it's great. Like, and, and some people criticize the movie, slight detour before we get to Sharon Tate, but some people criticize that bit. Oh, it's a really long movie. It's like nearly three hours and it's just to set up one joke. And I'm just like, that is worth it for me. I will watch that film over and over again, just so I can laugh at a Manson family person being burnt. That sounds really horrible and controversial, but like the way it was done, the grandiose music which was used in the bit where he was in that Nazi war movie parody thing. And he's like, he's, he's there, he's in his this silk dressing gown is like really epic. And there he is with a flamethrower. He's like, he's making use of those flamethrower lessons that he's going to burn a hippie who's invaded his privacy and his relaxation time in his pool. No, no hippie gets to do that on Rick Dalton's watch. He's not going to let them mess with him. So, uh, but yeah, sorry, that's my, I love that bit. That just makes me giggle like in fits every time I watch it. I really shouldn't. It probably makes me sound really sadistic that I like the sight of someone being burnt by a flamethrower. But I think in the way it was set up, it's just so weird and wacky that you know it's a bit like when the nazis got burnt in the cinema it, i think that's yeah. comparable on that similar sort of you feel like you shouldn't laugh but you kind of on the oh this is cool i'm enjoying this kind of vibe well here's the thing i think that we were talking about like oh i shouldn't laugh at this because it sounds sadistic but like let's not forget that those people wanted to kill them mm, so yeah. killing a killer is like should i really like you know feel bad about it like it's that yeah. kind of mindset i'm like why would you feel bad about it like because it all relates to sharon tate you know that's the interesting you mentioned the flamethrower it all goes back to sharon tate because well the unfortunate uh events unfortunate that sharon tate like in real life was pregnant um mm. i think was seven months pregnant and then she got killed brutally and sadistically by the manson family blood all over the house and she was pregnant and unfortunately the baby like couldn't even make it yeah. Uh, everyone in the house died uh, putting uh, blood on the wall, says pig. Some say helter skelter. The way that Sharon Tate had her life ended that way was so sad. And the way Tarantino portrays Sharon Tate as the eye candy of the golden age, the lovable, sweet, wonderful personality who's full of life and enjoys to have fun. I think that Tarantino made what was supposed to be done beautifully. Margot Robbie did a fantastic to make everyone love Sharon Tate, yeah. a promising upcoming star in the 60s, if anything, the face of the golden age. And a fun fact, just a good little piece, is that Sharon Tate was known for going bare feet in public places, uh, no shoes, no services. So I think Quentin Tarantino loves that as, a, as he's a food fetish himself. I have no idea what it is. But she was the perfect person to portray Sharon Tate and bringing like the adornness to the world. What do you think? Uh, genuinely. I mean, there's so many moments that really do bring that to life for me. The moment where she goes to see the Wrecking Crew, when she goes up to that, we just follow her feet, we follow her along. And then she comes in to the cinema and she's like, oh, one ticket, please. And then she 
gets in for free because she's in the movie. She goes in. And I think that whole scene, because this is the thing about Margot Robbie's involvement in this, the Sharon Tate character anyway, she doesn't say half as much as any of the characters all put together. She says very little dialogue on the screen for the entire film, but her presence is undeniably there. She is the ghost of Hollywood's past that plagues the entire film. And it's very good on Tarantino's part in case of misdirection then. So you're misdirected to believe if people have researched this and they know what happened to her in real life, they think, oh, you're making us love her and see how lovely she was before you kill her right in front of us. Which obviously, when I got to the end of the film, I was was not disappointed in the sense that I, I wasn't disappointed that oh, she didn't get killed, that's disappointing. I thought it was a beautiful way to end the film, bringing us back to sort of that end scene, which we mentioned a little bit earlier and what our main talking point is. I think it's beautifully put across then that they kept her alive. And in a way, although you're reflecting on it when you get to the end of the film saying, oh, this is what could have happened if things had gone slightly differently and if we had these people in our lives... So the instance of Rick and Cliff, if they actually existed, we might have had Sharon Tate with us still to this day, or at least for a little bit longer. There's a bittersweetness about it by the end of the film, a bittersweet end when you realise, oh, she's, you know, she's making friends with Rick, who has idolised her from the minute of the film. At the beginning of the film, he says, this is what the film is all about, Sharon Tate. At the beginning of the film, he goes, do you know who I'm, I'm next door neighbours with? I'm next door neighbours with Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. And he's like, he's really excited. And then you come back to that joy full circle by the end of the film. And then when it goes once upon a time in Hollywood on the screen, you realise that, oh, that's, but that's not what happened. And that's why it's so bittersweet. Because it's like a fairy tale. It is a fairy tale. But it's been acknowledged that it is a fairy tale ending in its most, I don't know, fullest way you can put it the fact that it didn't happen the way it's been portrayed on screen but at the same time because you know it didn't happen that way that's what makes it that little bit extra i don't know sad and a little bit more impactful on the audience when you watch it when you think oh that's lovely he made friends with his idol that he mentioned at the beginning of the film he's getting into the hollywood circles he's you know got a bright future possibly because he's getting in there and she's still alive and she didn't get killed like we expected her to but then it got to that stage where Mm, you leave the cinema and you think, but actually, that's not how it happened. And that's what makes it bittersweet. And so when you look back at scenes when she's in the cinema and you see the delight on her face when she's watching herself in The Wrecking Crew, it brings a little tear to my eye. But at the same time, you're still joyful in the sense that you think, you know, even though this isn't what she probably, we don't know what she would have said about this if she were alive. But I feel you get a good essence of what could have been if she was still here. I couldn't agree more, David. I think uh, the way he ended off the movie, I still remember the the atmosphere in the theater where we're all clapping just because like we wanted that to happen in real life. And the way Tarantino just gave us, you know, we always focus on Sharon Tate and he captures our like in the edge of our seat, like got us numb into the movie or like that beautiful piece, Sharon Tate, look what's about to happen. But all of a sudden he gives us like, oh, don't worry, she's free. Yeah. It got us like a relief. And the yeah. end of the movie, was fantastic. It was heartwarming. And I think Tarantino really got us invested with our emotions into the final scene. And I can't forget the reactions like from my friend and then the other people who watch it were just like talking. I think that could have been a better way to end the era than mm. what would happen in real life. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, absolutely. And I feel we can't really say much more after that. That's the storm, but no, we're going to end on this with really, to be honest. <laughs> 
I feel like I've talked so much. I hope I've let you talk a little bit over this oh, no, time. I, uh, <laughs> we just collaborated together. No, so I genuinely, I've loved having you on Ace. It's brilliant to ha have someone to talk about this sort of stuff too. Really go in deep with these kind of things and just talk about the meaning and the impact and the pure love of cinema and film itself. That's what the people make movies for. And that's why on every single shoot, to quote Tarantino himself, this is why we love making movies and amen thank you very much ace it's been a pleasure to have you on take 97 obviously guys keep an eye out on our social medias because i will be making a little comeback on this guy's podcast talking about a very special film again close to our hearts it's an iconic film i'm not gonna spoil it i'm looking forward to it it's gonna be great thank you for having me david thank you for inviting me uh in take 97 i definitely enjoyed that lovely conversation literally i literally cannot wait to start promoting the the movie that we're gonna talk and how we're gonna like play with people's mind and then i think it's gonna be amazing uh it's i'm looking forward to it as well like having you in films unchained and just break down every single piece of it yeah it'd be so good yeah uh, so i'm looking forward to that ace like you say, you mentioned Films Unchained. Give them a little shout out whilst you're here. You might as well. Give them some airtime. What are your social media links for everybody who wants to follow you, as well as us, obviously? <laughs> All right. You can only find me on Instagram at Films Unchained Pod. Eventually, I'm going to have a Twitter soon, but at the moment, Instagram is where the heart is at. You can find me uh, on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Films Unchained Podcast where breakdowns, movie analysis, and film talks take place. Awesome, amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, Ace. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. And once again, we love watching and talking about movies. And that's a wrap on the Quentin Tarantino episode of Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram, and my special guest, Ace from Films and Chains. Thank you very much, guys. I'll catch you on the next episode. See you later. Bye. <laughs>